even if you're not in a big company where you can run regression models on your own data and all of that, there's such wonderful marketing associations out there. These kind of findings of what are some of those best indicators, there's really easy ways to be able to find your way to that to not get distracted by too much. Hello and welcome to the Shiny New Object Podcast. My name is Tom Orlerton. I am the founder of Automated Creative, the creative effectiveness ad tech platform. And this is a podcast about the future of data-driven marketing. Every week or so, I have the pleasure of interviewing one of our industry's leaders, and this week is no different. I'm on a call with Anna Estland, who is Senior Director of Insights and Strategy at Perno Rico. Anna, for anyone who doesn't know who you are and what you do, could you give the audience some background. Absolutely. Hi, Tom. Happy to be here with you today. As you said, I'm a senior director at Pernod. We are a spirits and wine company, second biggest globally. Um, and I'm based out of New York in our US business. We have beautiful brands like Jameson, Absolute, Kahlua, Monkey 47 Gin, Mum Champagne. I can go on and on, but give you that context since a lot of people don't know what Pernod Ricard is as a company. Um, I lead a team here that drives insights to growth across brand, innovation, and shopper um, and working with our marketing partners and doing that. Before Pernod, I spent about 10 years in insights at General Mills and Nestle. So working across brands like Blue Buffalo or Cheerios or Perrier. Um, I've worked on a lot of global businesses, including an expat role in Switzerland. And way back when I started my career in sports marketing, working for the uh, Minnesota Timberwolves and Minnesota Twins, which is where I'm from. Wow, man, that is that is quite the career. So I have very high expectation of, of what will follow. Thank, thanks for joining us. So first up, in the last five years, what have you become better at saying no to when it comes to your career and work life? Yeah, I have, Tom, become better at saying no to excessive data and research. And I've done better at how I say no, I would say too. Um, but in general, more isn't always better when it comes to data and research, right? So I've been better at using that filter of what really is best to drive a business decision. So focusing, I would say, more on the ROI of research or my team's time. And I think that's honestly made us more impactful in, in what we do. So I think of it almost like an art museum where you're curating your best work instead of just constantly adding on new wings. So the, the way I think about it is that the common challenge we face, especially in insights, is, you know, sometimes people can use data and research as a crutch to make decisions. So they don't feel like they have all the information to make a decision. Maybe they don't believe the information. Maybe they're people that disagree on the information. They kind of want a middle ground. So I think one of the ways I've been able to say no is really thinking about when we already have a lot of great information, how do we package it better or drive it farther. So I can give you just a few quick examples in, in the campaign world. So a lot of times people, you know, we do a lot of consumer learning before we launch big campaigns. And a lot of times people will want to retest those campaigns if they are making minor changes. So we've done so much good foundational learning that I can easily tell the teams, okay, we might want to go do new consumer learning if there's a major change in a story arc or the brand role in the story or the music or the characters, right? Like that might be, that might warrant new consumer learning. But if it's a small copy change or VO changes, no, we don't need to do that. And so a lot of times it's just like helping the teams with education or case studies to help them see that. Um, and I'll give you one last small example um, is... A lot of times people just kind of want, in my world in research, 
a lot of the sub data, I'll call it, right? So for example, we, we have this kind of longstanding myth, I think, that we need to win with younger consumers or category buyers or something for a campaign or an innovation to work. And a lot of times it's just critical that we get that broadest reach possible and get that right. You know, especially as you're in kind of later stages of learning. So I don't need, you know, all this extra data on consumers, 21 to 24, tequila buyers, you know, $40 plus. Um, I just need to know what's going to get us to decisions faster. Um, and so it really is then just upfronting on upfront that consultation of how will we take this business decision? Is it about winning with the broadest group possible? Sometimes it's about immediate target, and then you go, it might go a bit more narrow, right? But that upfront consulting really helps, I think, save data overload and, and distracting from you know where we can just move quickly and have the best impact. So I love the outset of this section where you're saying no to data in your role. <laughs> Excessive <laughs> data, Tom. <laughs> Excessive data. Thank you. So what was the pain that got you to that? So you must have said yes a million times or like at some point you said enough is enough. So help me understand the story to help what you got to the point to know to excessive data. I think the pain has been realization in a couple of ways. One is when I see me or my team, you know, spending too much time in the data gathering part of the journey, right? We're looking at too many things and that's down the road when you're trying to take a decision on launching a new campaign or innovation or packaging or whatever, I see that decision process at the end become too slow. And I would say that part is the part that tilts me off, tipped me off the most that something needed to change. So then the upfront process of gathering the data or even before that consulting upfront how you're going to make a decision was more of the behavior change, I would say, that I made. But honestly, the pain points can be anywhere through the journey. It can be in gathering the data and you're taking too much time. The analyzing of the data can take too much time. But I would say the, the part at the end where I saw teams struggling to take a decision because we were looking at too many things, that's, I think, what really tipped me off that I needed to change and, and start to really have the, uh, you know a bit of a stronger hand in that consultation up front to really help teams think ahead to what they really need to make a decision. So moving on to the section we ask each week, which is what is your top data-driven marketing tip? What is that one bit of silver bullet advice that you find yourself sharing most often? Yeah, it's somewhat linked, um, to be honest with you. So I would say first, the pain point, right, is we all have more data and dashboards than ever before. And especially for me in insights, you know, I probably see that more than most Um you know, kind of owning a lot of those data sources. So my best advice is focus your time on the data that drives decisions and is an indicator for outcomes. So I'll take each of those, you know, separately. So first I'm driving decisions. In your role as a marketer, what data should you know to understand the business and drive the decisions in your world? Because that can be different by marketing roles, right? So for example, in marketing and insights, we've got sales data, we've got buyer data, we've got campaign data, we've got social listening data, and each of those has their own dashboards too, right? Or data sources. So for my marketing teams, as a brand or a PL owner, I want them to know sales data and drivers inside and out, right? Like I want them to be able to diagnose distribution versus velocity and state-level data and brand sublines. And a lot of times insights and analytics roles help with that, but that to me is the North Star of data that is the starting point. 
And every campaign you do or marketing touch point you do or, you know, at point of purchase activation that you do at retail, all of that feeds up into that, right? But start with knowing your business inside and out. Now, in my world and insights, oftentimes, you know, what's driving decisions for us is looking more closely at behavioral data and how that can be used to drive a decision that will ultimately drive sales. So you might have specialists in things like media data or social listening or e-com or whatever, but I, I use the lens of what's most likely to drive a big marketing decision that's going to impact sales, something like brand positioning or touch point mix, not necessarily you know decision within a touch point, for example. Um, the second piece of this on an indicator for outcomes is what of the, of the data you're dealing with, what is going to best correlate to that sales, you know, sales outcome or brand equity, which obviously is, is another important piece of the puzzle. So, you know, as we're looking at trying to get closer to behavior and insights, that can be through, you know, observation, actual data online, simulating real world situations and research and having people make trade-offs, right? Um, But even within that, like you can get lost, I think. So I've been guilty in my career early on of looking at too too much at things like click-through rates or liking and research or something, Right. And oftentimes, those just are distractors for what is going to be most likely to move the needle. So I'll give you an example now, is I've been spending more time the last couple of years on share search. And the reason for that is, you know, it's it's a signal of consumers actively seeking you out. Um, But more importantly, it's predictive of market share. And so even if you're not a big company, which as far as I know, you know, we're second biggest wine and spirits globally, but we're not like... Nestle or like, you know, some of the bigger companies I've been at in terms of size. So even if you're not in a big company where you can run regression models on your own data and all of that, there's such wonderful marketing associations out there. Like, you know, we were talking about WFA or WARC or Advertising Research Foundation that publish these kind of findings of what are some of those best indicators. And, you know, there's, there's really easy ways to be able to find your way to that to not get distracted by too much. So much there. We could do that. I think we could do a few podcasts based on this. So help me understand some more of the, the, the I think, did you call them detractors? You said click-through rate. Did you say likes in, in pre-flight and so on? Help me understand, like, what are the ones where you're like, no, just ignore that. That That's just stuff. That's just noise. Yeah. I mean, it depends on what we're looking at, right? So, like, I'll just, I'll use research because that might be, you know, a bit more unique for your audience. Um So in research, you know, we're oftentimes trying to figure out, you know, what is going to be predictive of a certain outcome, right? Whether that's sales or whether that's brand equity or whatever. So in any given consumer interaction, I'll use quantitative research as an example where you're surveying people. um, You know, you are a lot of times asking, honestly, probably too many questions (laughs) that we've just become burdened with over the years of just thinking that it's going to actually make a difference. So, you know, Purchase intent is one that that sometimes gets picked on. So, you know, we have we ask people, how likely are you to buy this product based on the ad you've seen or the innovation concept you've seen or the new packaging or whatever? Um, to me, that's a starting point, but doesn't get you close enough to an actual consumer decision. So to get to find ways to get closer, as an example, you can put people in a simulated purchase environment and actually have them choose between your new concept and somebody else's. Or you can take purchase intent and combine it with something like, you know, is this really something that meets an unmet need for you? 
And those two things combined become stronger than just, you know, the one thing at its core. So I think I've been a lot smarter over the years of, of how to think about what is best going to get you to that outcome and saying no to either, either one, using something in isolation or two, using something like liking is kind of a good example. Like, do you like this new ad or not? Well, honestly, I don't really care if you like it, if it's not going to change your mind to do something differently. So what can give me, what is an indicator to get me closer to will you change your behavior or not is the lens that I would take. This episode of the Shiny New Object podcast is brought to you in partnership with Manfest. Whether it's live in London or streamed online to the global marketing community, you can always expect a distinctive and daring blend of fast-paced content, startup innovation pitches, and unconventional entertainment from Madfest events. You'll find me causing trouble on stage, recording live versions of this podcast, and sharing a beer with the nicest and most influential people in marketing. Check it out at www.madfestlondon. So we're going to move on to your shiny new object, which is a creative compass. So normally I have a good understanding of what the shiny new object is, but I'm sure some people listening to this will think, oh, that sounds interesting. Can you explain what a creative compass is, why it's important and why it's your shiny new object? Yes. So a creative compass to me is a marketing effectiveness decision framework in your company. Now, the reason this is a shiny or sparkly object to me is it's what helps you quickly drive to creative and media actions, assess your impact, and then adjust. So it is kind of just that simple framework and your North Star of how you take decisions in a company related to marketing effectiveness that needs to be super simple, clear, like anybody could play it back or you could put it on one side and everybody would get it. Now, the reason this is important, the problem I've seen across companies and what's getting worse, right, is we've got fragmented data, we've got fragmented stakeholders. And you and I were both at a, a WFA forum recently on marketing effectiveness. And I could see it there and everybody facing similar challenges. So less than half say they have a clearly defined framework. We focus more on the people, you know, and the data versus the how we drive to decisions. So the action, you know, that, that kind of sits under creative compass and what I found that works well is how you take that amazing data and take it to decisions. So here's just a few high-level examples of our compass components or kind of that how. Um, we built a comms learning playbook at Pernod that says... Any new campaign over a million dollars is going to get deeper learning and partnership from my team. Smaller campaigns are going to look different. Second part of this was we built a campaign scorecard, very simply a one-pager that has a lot underneath it, but a simple one-pager across functions, which is so critical. So Insights, Media, and our marketing mix team said, for other pieces they own, like research or media data or marketing mix, what are the most critical KPIs on what you own before a campaign launches, after, um, while it's live, you know, and farther than that, how are you going to take those KPIs to make decisions? So who owns it and when? And then the third example I'd give you is, you know, campaign workshops, which are kind of taking those same principles. And after marketing mixed results come back, which for us is kind of that last, you know, piece of the puzzle on campaigns is 
how do we then take our cross-functional partners, look back at what we've learned and what we need to do differently moving forward? So that creative compass is, is a, more of the how and the who, um, but it's really the simple frameworks you have on how you drive decisions to the organization so you're not getting distracted by, you know, too much data or drowning in it. It's interesting. We were talking to the WFA and we, they partnered with us on a report that we did called Compounding Creative just before Q4. Just look, And we did a survey of ex-guests of this podcast as well as you know, people in the wider industry. And one of the things that really stuck out for me is only one third of marketers have access to live campaign data. Mm, yes. Yeah. And it's refreshing to hear about your compass and about what did you say? This like insistence on simplicity, so anyone could play it back, which is really easy to say, very hard to do. So I'm curious to know, like, why why are we in this position where we have this really strong signal data, lots of noise data that you've talked about, but yet, like marketers just have this no idea what's going on in their campaigns. And I think in the WFA report, it said that like the thing that everyone excelled at was just getting stuff live. I can't, was it campaign yes. campaign activity? Yeah. Actually activating the campaign. Yeah. yeah, so everyone can like get it, get get something out of the door, but a pretty weak analyzing how it's performing live, and even worse in you know being able to make it better the next time. So why are we in that position? Yeah, such a good question. We um first on your first point, I think the reason why only a third of marketers have access to their data is I think it's been a bit intentional, and I think it's one we've we've kind of built more specialists into the ecosystem. And so you have the people who really understand that data and how to use it and how not to get distracted by it, helping be the filter out to what matters. And I think that's somewhat what we do. Like, I don't, I don't give you all my research results. I don't think the media team shares every single thing they have on, you know, recent impressions, but they know how to use it. So I think part of it's been a bit intentional, um, but there's, there still is the struggle and the pull to want to dive and swim around in the data a lot. And that's not just insights market, you know, brand marketers and media and everybody else is the same. And I think it comes back to, you know, being a bit nervous, you're going to take the wrong decision or that you don't have the right data to take the decision. So it honestly, part of it is just about being brave and being bold. I'd rather give my teams not enough and have them ask me questions and I can double click if I need to versus give you everything at once. Um, but it's a, it's a balancing act. You know, we're still facing it every single day. Like we've made a lot of great strides with, the, with this approach. You know, we've seen our effectiveness and ROI go up. We've seen our awareness go up. We've had brand love increases. And I think a part of it has been our intentional focus on creative effectiveness, but a lot of it has been more about this kind of simplicity that you, you nodded to. So but it's a journey. Like we, you know, we could still get much better at it. That's for sure. This discussion is was very close to home in terms of what automated creative do. You know, that I think when we got into this space, we noticed that there was people that would provide data on like A B testing was the favorite. You know, we tested a blue ad and we tested a white ad and the and the black ad won. I'm sorry, the blue ad won. And you're like, Great, does that mean you're gonna make all of your ads blue from now on? Well, no, no, we just know that whereas you know, our view is like if we can give our clients data on like thematic things as opposed to actual things like blue or black boy or girl you don't really do anything with that stuff but what we really love to do is to give brands data on like strategically useful insights like you know one of our clients spoke at a conference and they said that what we're able to do is help for a baby milk brand help them understand that it was ads targeted at mums the best thing you could put in that ad was actually a dad it was like oh wow this is an incredible moment but unless you're thinking strategically about what you can do with that data you're not going to get those outcomes like a, a different 
supplier or a different version of that project might have gone, well, we've seen pink do really well compared to yellow, but that's kind of useless, isn't it? So how do you advise your teams to make sure that they are getting this kind of actionable data? Is it, is it something that you have to kind of tell them to unlearn everything or is, does the creative compass do it all for them? Like, yes, you've got the compass, but that sounds like a tool, but how much training, how much changing do you have to do with your teams to make it work? I love your, your AV example. Um, I guess to say it simply... I would focus more at the beginning and the end of the process. Beginning, in your example, on the color, um, you know, what are those territories or platforms of things you want to learn on? So we can help design some learning to get you there, right? You can, yes, of course, you can A-B test things like colors, but it's way more meaningful if you push your team to A-B test. Are we about, you know a reward or a treat or a, an indulgence. So, you know, those are all kind of similar territories, you know, but if you were to say, go down different paths of like a higher level of what it means. So I think at the beginning of the process, it's what's the real question and take it to a high level to learn. Now, at the end of the process, I would say um, your example is a great one too, because I think of it and call it design principles. And that can be something in creative or innovation or packaging or anything, but if you have that learning mindset and you are going to learn about, you know, are we more about a treat for something I'm going to bring to a, a party or a treat for myself, for example, um, and you build on the creative ways that you can bring that to life for a consumer and what some of those, you know, semiotic cues might be, that's going to get you so much farther and faster to building out any campaign underneath, you know, what you're doing or any touch point. Versus just saying this very specific thing on, you know, Instagram is going to work in this way. So at both of the beginning and the end, my advice is take it up a higher level because we often are too down in the details. Hearing you talk about that, it's really reminded me something of, I can't remember if I heard it, but essentially the best marketers are people who market in categories where it's hard to differentiate the category if you don't know what it is. So bottled water, for example, it would take some incredibly talented person to be able to distinguish between the top 10 most best-selling bottled waters, right? I don't know, I'm sure there's some water pro out there tell me I'm totally wrong. But certainly with beer, like a Pilsner or something like that, you know, it's very, like the difference between like the top 10 is is minimal from a taste perspective, but from a brand perspective, just come a world apart. And I think that's what's so fascinating about alcohol and marketing is for that reason that you can't just reel off a list of features or benefits. It has to be the brand. So unless you are capturing that thematic, high-level strategic data from your campaigns, then you are, you know, you're just comparing, oh, well, this shot of the bottle that was like you know with a beach in the background did better than the house in the background and that's just that's not the thing that's going to move the needle from a brand perspective as you say so i'm just so you, you've got me on my favorite subject here so i'm gonna i'm gonna stop myself so to the last question so where are we going with this like we're not going to get less data it's going to be cookie depreciation that's going to be different but you can guarantee that the industry is going to find five new things 10 new things to replace it and then we've got all of the data coming from haptics we've got data coming from all of these different platforms that haven't been in invented yet these behaviors we don't even know about so we're probably going to like drown in data in ways that we can't even imagine so how are you going to guide your team through that yeah I'm still working through it every day but i would say a couple of simple tips are keep in mind that kind of example of being an art curator not building out your museum further think about where the source of truth should be 
right? And I think defining that source of truth for us is that campaign scorecard is our source of truth. So in whatever your world is, define that source of truth and define it simply so people can play it back. Um, and think about where, how you use kind of specialists across the organization, right? I shouldn't own media data. My media team should own that. You know, I should own research data. My marketers should really own, you know, Nielsen and sales data. So we all need to be aware of each other's data, but the more you can kind of have that divide and conquer approach, the better. And of course, what's coming, you know, as we look towards the future is how do you use AI tools to help you simplify and streamline through what matters? Now, that's probably more of the journey that I'm excited to get on because that feels, you know, like more of a new challenge. A lot of what I'm talking about is more about, you know, kind of being bold enough to say no to too much data and almost trying to influence your organization to find those simple ways to work together. Um, AI will be a tool to help, but isn't going to help you with the how you do it, you know? I'm really buzzed up on this idea of data that you can talk to. You know, so closed LLMs, basically. So, you know, you've got all your, if you, all of your, you know, you mentioned research, marketing, sales, Nielsen, data. you've got all of this data under Perno Rico, but actually you're right. It's a divide and conquer on databases and dashboards. Who needs another dashboard? But really like being able to verbally talk to data and have it private and closed. So it's, you know, it's not accessible like ChatGPT, but you just go, right. Okay. So we're going to launch a non-alcoholic variant of Jameson for argument's sake. And we want to launch it to, who should we launch it to? Like, where should we do it? What should be the you know, all that kind of stuff. So we're that's a direction we're moving in. But I think it's quite early days. But I think that marketing is going to seem very different in the you next know, 10 or 20 years. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, once we can get our proprietary data in there or build your own proprietary tools, like that's going to be a game changer. We're not fully to write on that yet. You know, we're still living out of Power BI where we've got a lot of great dashboards. There's still a lot of filtering you need to do, I guess. Um but I'm excited of what's to come there. I'm really terrified about the idea that one day research and insight and production and delivery and analysis will all happen instantaneously. Imagine, uh, I don't know what we're going to do when that happens, but uh, you know, it's <laughs> it's possible. Anyway, look, you've got me talking far more than I normally do on the podcast, which I, I don't know what that means, but I appreciate it. And I've really enjoyed our conversation. So if someone wants to get in touch with you and discuss any of the things that we've talked about today, where's the best place to do that? And crucially, what needs to go in a message to you that you'll actually reply to? Yeah, best way would be LinkedIn is a very easy way. Um, the other way would be, you know, I, t I try to prioritize time to go to marketing effectiveness or insights conferences. So WFA or ARF or marketing research event, TMRE, um, especially in the New York area, um, those are good places to find me. And what makes a good message, I would say, is start with the business problem. What's the pain point or problem you're trying to solve as a peer or a partner? Um, and then we could nerd out on the you know solution or case studies or the you know the tool. Um, you know, the other way thing I would say is the insights community is a pretty tight-knit one. So another good way would be, you know, find a mutual contact. I'm always talking to my insights friends, you know, about problems or solutions or whatever. So um, you know, kind of using your network the good old-fashioned way works too. Brilliant. That's excellent advice. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. It's been fun. Hi. Just before you 
go i'd really appreciate it if you could take the time to write a review of the shiny new object podcast on apple podcasts or itunes whatever it's called these days or whichever podcast provider you use we're an indie podcast so it would go a long way for us if you could just share the word and give us a bit of a support on those channels that would just be fantastic if you haven't got time that's also cool and yeah if you could tell your colleagues about the podcast and also if possible don't forget to subscribe and i'd love to hear your feedback uh if you'd like to speak on the podcast or be a guest or you think i'm asking the wrong questions anything i'd be super interested to hear what you think so please email me at tom at automatedcreative.net that's t-o-m at uh i'm not gonna bother spelling it anyway you'll work it out thanks so much